About 1400 years before Christ was born, there was a drama being played out in the Middle East. God's people, known in the scriptures as the children of Israel, were enslaved in Egypt. And it was an awful time for them. In fact, Pharaoh had sought to wipe them out as a nation. He made laws that the male children should be destroyed. Moses was born during that time and as a young child, he was placed in a basket and put in the reeds near the Nile River. He was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter and he was adopted. Later, when he was 40 years old, he was out walking among the Hebrews. And he saw an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew, and he killed the Egyptian. Word came to Pharaoh what had taken place, and it was announced that Pharaoh was out after Moses' life. Moses fled from there. He went to the land of Midian, the Bible says. It's known today as the Sinai Peninsula. And there he became a shepherd in the household of Jethro. He took care of the flocks of Jethro and married one of Jethro's daughters, Zipporah. The story we're going to read today was written by Moses. And it takes place when he is 80 years old. So he has been a shepherd now for 40 years. Nothing is written in the Bible about that time period. And we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 3. Let's turn there. And last week, we had Moses being spoken to by God through the flame that had come upon a bush. But the bush was not being destroyed. The conversation that Moses had with God continues this week. We pick it up in verse 3, or verse 7 of chapter 3. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them. That phrase should resonate in the heart of every believing Christian. I have come down to deliver them. The Lord is speaking to Moses. He has left heaven itself to come down to deliver his people. 1400 years later, he will do it again. He will come down to deliver his people. He will be raised up on a cross and he will die the death that was rightly ours. He will come down off that cross and he'll be laid in a tomb. And on Sunday, he'll be raised back to life. And he is in heaven now waiting for one more time when he will come down. And when he comes down, he will deliver us for eternity. We will go to be with him in heaven. So the Lord is telling Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. 
to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. There could not be a more different Moses than there was here. When we had Moses several chapters before, 40 years earlier, Moses thought he could deliver the Israelites from the bondage of slavery. Sought to do that single-handedly. And now, 40 years later, he is told by God to go do it, and he doesn't believe he can do it at all. He is totally, totally different. But what we learn in this passage thus far is that God had heard the cry of his people. God knew their sorrows. And God had come down to deliver them and take them to a land of promise. And the Lord directed Moses, go to Pharaoh and bring my people out of Egypt. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God is promising him, you will be successful. You do what I ask you to do. And when you come out of Egypt, you will come and worship me right in this very place. Now Moses is haunted for 40 years out there in that desert wilderness area as he's been shepherding the flock of Jethro. He has had this inward and outward sense of failure. He is thinking about it all the time. Perhaps you have thought about it. Some of you aren't 40 years old. Some of you are old enough to remember 40 years ago. 40 years ago, I remember. I remember things I'm ashamed of now. And even though I've been forgiven by Christ, the shame and the guilt still crops up in a haunting way. And I just abruptly think, wow, how could I have said that? How could I have done that? How could I have been there? How could I have even planned to be there? Those things haunt us for a lifetime. But praise God, we're not saved because of how we feel. We're saved because of what Jesus did. So Moses, in this broken down condition, haunted by his inward and outward failures. He's thinking to himself, how could this be? But God is saying, look, Moses, when I come on the scene, when I come into a person's life, you have no past. You have now and you have eternity. And so in all of our lives, our sins that have been confessed, our sins that we've sought Jesus' blood to cover, they're gone. We no longer have that past. All we have is a present with God. It's a wonderful thing to think we can start over, over and over and over again. Well, 
It goes on, verse 13, And Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, Who is or what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. My name forever. Moses wanted to know what he should say in reply to the question when he arrived with the Israelites. What is his name? What does Moses mean? Does he mean they've forgotten the name of God? That they don't know about Yahweh? That Jehovah is just completely out of their mind? What does it mean? Well, in the Bible, name is referring to character or disposition. It is talking about the very essence and nature of someone. And so he is essentially saying here, these people are filled with doubt. They're filled with fears. They're filled with all kinds of trouble and anxiety. And when I go to them and say, God has sent me to you, they're going to ask, well, what did God say about himself? Why are we in this situation? And God's response is, you tell them I am that I am has sent you. And what does that mean? It means exactly what it says. I am that I am. It means God has an unchangeable nature of truth and righteousness. And he is who he was. He is now what he has always been. And he always will be what he is now. I am that I am. I am the God that promised Abraham. And I am the God that was with Isaac and Jacob. And I am the God that is with you. I have not changed my mind. My disposition is this. I have come down to deliver you. And here's where we come in. It says, I'm that way to all generations. Today, we can rejoice that God is, I am who I am. He is always true and he is always faithful. God always hears the cry of his people. God knows every sorrow of his people. And God is providing a deliverance that will be supernatural for his people. And ultimately, we will dwell in the land of promise for eternity. God has an unchangeable character, and he is always true and faithful. Let's go on, verse 16 and following. God says, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God predicted a long and severe contest with Pharaoh. And Moses seems to understand that. And Moses is concerned about the people's faith. Would it endure such a long ordeal, such a long trial? And so God is going to give Moses an answer to his question. He will give him three signs. We're only going to look at one of them today. Go to chapter 4. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to him. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. Now this rod was an inanimate object. It was a stick, if you will. It's probably six to seven feet high. It is a tool that a shepherd would use. If one of the livestock got down in a ravine, it could be used to help get them out. If there was some enemy that came in, it could be used as a weapon. It was a simple tool. It was a rod, probably a rod that Moses had carried in his hand for years. And God said, what is that that is in your hand? He says, a rod. Verse 3, God said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. Now it's interesting that Moses is the author of this. And the very word that he uses here in the Hebrew translated fled is the very word that he wrote in chapter 2 verse 15 when it says, When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. Moses was running for his life in chapter 2. When we come to chapter 4, he is running for his life. This serpent is real. It's live. It's six or seven feet long. And Moses sees it, and he knows if he is bitten by that serpent, the venom will kill him. So obviously he is afraid. He is startled. The fight or flight sense comes upon him, and he flees for his life. But God calls him back. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Well, how many of you would grab a poisonous snake by the tail? You might do it once. But what's that snake going to do? It's just going to whip back and bite you. 
That's the worst place to grab a poisonous snake. Not that I'm recommending anybody grab a snake. You grab it right behind the head so it can't bite you. But God said to Moses, grab it by the tail. So Moses reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. Now it's very important to note that Moses had a rod, he threw the rod down to the ground, that rod became a serpent, God said pick up the serpent, he grabbed the serpent and it became a rod. It does not say it was the same rod Moses threw down there. And even if it was, something drastically had happened to that rod. God had gotten a hold of that rod. It was no longer Moses' rod, it was the rod of God. And just as that rod had changed, so had Moses' calling changed. Moses would go up against Egypt. Egypt was evil and powerful. But with God directing him, Moses would battle and defeat the serpent and all the darkness it represented. The humble shepherd who fled from Pharaoh and fled from the serpent through divine strength would overcome all the might of Egypt. Instead of shepherding sheep, Moses was now called to shepherd the children of Israel. He would grab them from the clutches of oppression and lead them to the promised land. His rod was no longer his rod. It belonged to God. Well, that's an exciting story. And you get right to that point and you say, oh, good for Moses. And uh, you've probably heard many sermons on this before. And I have too, and some have been inspiring and some have been less than inspiring. But as I was studying this, I kept thinking, there's something about this rod and something about this serpent. Something about it that I am not getting. So I decided to take the concordance and look up the use of the word rod everywhere in the Bible just to see if I could find something. And you, you go to Psalm 2 and it's describing the Son of God that will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Well, that's good. And then that takes you right to Revelation 19 where it describes Jesus coming on a white horse with many crowns and a sword in his mouth to slay the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's cool too. And then you can read in Psalm 23 where the verse says, your rod and your staff comfort me. And that's all good. There's, there's a lot in the Bible about a rod. But as I mentioned last week, good preaching explains the Bible. Great preaching gets us to the cross. There's something about the rod that is associated with the cross. I couldn't find it for a while. Kept searching. And I think I found it and I want to share that. Please turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. 
verses 1 and 2. This is written about 650 years before Jesus. A prophecy about Jesus. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. In most of your Bibles, in verse 1, where it says, there, there shall come forth a rod, it is capitalized. The translators recognized and knew this is talking about Jesus. He would come from the stem of Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David of the tribe of Judah. And Jesus would be of the tribe of Judah. And this is a 650-year-old prophecy before Jesus was born, describing that there would come forth a rod. And that rod would be God himself. It would be Jesus come down to save humanity. And we see another tie-in when we go to John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8. Jesus is being dogged by his critics and he silences them at least there's no more words of theirs recorded except they want to kill him and we read in verse 58 Jesus says this most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was I am Jesus is claiming to be God here he is saying I am that I am I am Jesus has come down to save. He is the rod that has come to save. He is of the stem of Jesse. Now, how does it apply? What is this about a rod and a serpent and grabbing it by the tail and all that? Well, as you know, that serpent represented all the evil of Egypt. It represents sin. It represents the devil. It represents everything that is against God. When Jesus went on the cross, what happened to him? He became sin for us. The serpent bit him. The serpent did not bite Moses. The devil poured every weapon of hell against Jesus. Every rebellious sin, every known unknown sin, all the wickedness, everything. Jesus became that for us so we could become his righteousness. The divine trade took place at the cross. Now, I think to myself, why grab the tail of that serpent? And when I see there's an association in scriptures between the rod and the cross, it makes perfect sense. You see, if we went to the cross while Jesus was on it, and we were moved emotionally, and we wanted to embrace Jesus, we would reach up to his feet, which would be like the tail. And I want you to go there with me in your mind today. I want you to think of Jesus coming down to deliver. 
There he is on the cross. He is taking your sins upon him. He is going to die. The serpent is biting him. The venom of sin is coming upon him so that we don't have to experience that. We come to that cross. We lift our hands up and we place them on the feet of Jesus. Maybe both hands. And we look up and we see I am that I am. We see a God who promised Adam and Eve salvation. We see a God who promised Abraham salvation. We see a God who promised Moses salvation. We see a God who promised his followers in the New Testament salvation. We see a God who is promising us salvation. We see a God who will deliver his people, who knows their sorrows, who knows their pains, who knows their difficulties. And when we hold those feet of Christ, something inside of us moves. We are deeply affected by what he has to do in order to save us. The price Jesus pays in order to save us is beyond our ability to understand. But one thing is clear. When we stand there and we hold those feet, we know Jesus paid it all. And the only response from us can be all to Him. I owe. And I'm just wondering if there's anybody here today who would like to say that to God. If you would, I invite you to stand. Father in heaven, thank you that you never change. Thank you that you have delivered us through Christ and you will soon deliver us from this world. We thank you in Jesus' name.